it is 5 p.m. on Thursday, which means that you are at the bar. I have a bi-monthly discussion about issues the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Um, Jennifer Braceras' seat today is being filled by Erin Hawley, who is a senior legal fellow at the Independent Women's Law Center. Uh, she previously served as an associate professor of law at the University of Missouri, where she taught constitutional litigation, federal income tax, tax policy, and agricultural law. Um, her scholarship focused primarily on the federal courts, and she's been published in numerous journals on that subject. Um, but it is her expertise uh, on the broader implications and potential limitations on agency power, which is why uh, we brought her on to at the bar this week. Um, she she is a stalwart uh, defender of actual constitutional government. Um, she has some critiques of how it is that we quote unquote make law um, in this country. But uh, the reason I brought her on is because our subject is West Virginia against EPA. Um, and, and this is a case that is going to be um, you know, decided by the Supreme Court this upcoming term. Um, and Erin, can we just start about uh, with just laying out what the case is about, um, what sort of doctrines are involved and what the broader implications of a decision on this case might be? Absolutely. So thanks, Inez, so much for having me. Um, and you all should know that Inez is herself uh, an expert on administrative law and certainly a stalwart defender, uh, as you all know, about the constitutional order and the structural constitution. So with respect uh, to West Virginia versus EPA, this is actually a case uh, that has been kicking around uh, the courts, including the Supreme Court, for a number of years now. Uh, so in 2015, uh, Congress's uh, proposed cap and trade legislation had failed. Uh, it had not passed Congress. Obama had not been able, uh, President Obama had not been able to enact that into law. Uh, so what the uh, Environmental Protection Agency did is they looked around and said, you know, how can we sort of get to the same point? How can we institute basically cap and trade legislation uh, through the administrative apparatus? And that resulted um, in the Clean Power Plan. Again, this was in 2015. It was an EPA, uh, an administrative rule. Um, and what that rule did was take actually what's been called a very obscure provision uh, of the Clean Air Act and transform it into something that really can regulate uh, the, the entire uh, nation's energy and how that energy is produced in addition to who produces it. Uh, so the provision issue is Section 7441D. Uh, this is really an ancillary uh, provision uh, of the EPA, of the Clean Air Act, I should say, rather. Um, and the Clean Air Act, just for a little bit of 30,000-foot uh, view, uh, the Clean Air Act basically regulates uh, two, two types of um, uh, uh, entities. Um, so the uh, Clean Air Act has jurisdiction uh, over uh, emission sources. And there are two basic types of emission sources. There are mobile and there are stationary. Uh, so here we're talking about the stationary category of emission sources. Uh, this is all of our energy producing things, such as coal power plants, for particular, which are particularly at issue here. Um, and then there's two types of coal power plants. There are coal power plants that were built uh, before the Clean Air Act, and there are coal power plants that were built subsequent to the Clean Air Act. And those two uh, entities are usually governed by different rules. Uh, so it's a complicated structure, but generally speaking, grandfathered um, power plants, so the, the old power plants that were in existence before the Clean Air Act was passed, 
are governed by what is known as best available technology. And what this means is that these plants are basically required to upgrade uh, to the best available technology in order to keep their emissions uh, to a minimum, uh, to the least extent possible. But this wasn't good enough uh, for the Obama administration's uh, EPA. Again, they wanted this entire capping trade system. So they used Section 7411D, um, and they basically set a standard uh, that was too low for existing plants to meet. So this meant that existing plants would be required to uh, reduce hours and or subsidize green energy. They, it, it really did implement cap and trade. So in order to keep operating, uh, these existing plants could subsidize uh, things that were identified as green energy. So this idea of uh, being unable to comply uh, with uh, the emissions limits is, is what gave rise to the big controversy. And I will, uh, we can, can get into the details of that, um, but the coal industry was initially uh, represented by Larry Tribe, uh, who's a professor at Harvard Law School. And I loved what he said because it really sort of encapsulates this case. And it says, burning the Constitution, uh, he argued in a brief before the Supreme Court, should not become part of our national energy policy. And what his point was is that we're talking about an administrative agency who is using a little known role to actually fundamentally change the way energy is produced in this country. That's not how administrative law works. Uh, that's not how it should work. Um, so that's a little bit of the background of this case. Yeah, um, it, it's good that you pointed out that Congress actually did consider very similar mm -hmm. kinds of schemes. And of course, those schemes could not pass Congress. Um, one, of, one of the issues here, uh, if the court gets the merits at all, if they mm -hmm. resolve some standing issues that I, I don't think we'll go into today, um, which could be a, a sort of route out uh, for them if they don't want to resolve any of the important merits of this case. Mm -hmm. um, but what what um, what questions around or what doctrines is the court going to use to consider? Because the, the ones that and I'm, I'm contrary to what Aaron said, mm -hmm. I'm not a real expert in administrative law, but um, there seems to be there's an important question doctrine that the courts have been essentially trying to replace actual limitations on the different branches and their powers um, with, which is essentially saying, well, if if the agency is is making a, a, a sort of, if, well, first of all, if Congress speaks clearly, that's one thing. If, if it's an important question, which seems to me to be a little bit subjective on the part of the mm -hmm. justices, if it's a really important question, then we'll assume that Congress has to have made a clear statement, has to have actually spoken to this question. But if it's a question of lesser importance, um, then we can assume that this was within the broad delegation that was given to the agencies. Um, you know, do you think the court is going to essentially rewrite, um, since we do have five votes now, mm -hmm. potentially, uh, for some kind of limitation on agency power? Do you think the court is going to rewrite those rules or do you think the court is going to resurrect as uh, Justice Gorsuch did in his opinion in Gundy, something like a non-delegation doctrine that actually gets to the constitutional problems with the way that we, I don't even want to say make law, but but issue regulations that influence millions of Americans in terms of, um, in this case, energy, but could be any number of legal issues or any number of, of um, policy issues uh, affecting anyone um, in this country. Absolutely. So I, I think those doctrines are, are actually really related. Um, so on the one hand, uh, you've got the non-delegation, I'll be there. 
that you've got the non-delegation doctrine. We, we've got a child who does not care about the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, but with the non-delegation doctrine, you've got Congress or you've got the Supreme Court rather saying the Congress basically needs to do its job. Um, it needs to decide those important policy issues. It needs to lay out clear guidelines, uh, as Inez said. Um, but on the other hand, um, you've got this doctrine that the Supreme Court has been using more and more in recent years called the major question doctrine. And it sort of gets you to the same place. It says that when you've got something of significant economic or political or social consequence, then we expect Congress to have spoken and to have spoken clearly on such an issue. Um, and this doctrine really had a resurrection in, in an interesting and unlikely case. Um, and that was King versus Burwell. And in that case, it was an Obamacare case, uh, as you'll remember. Um, and what the Chief Justice said in that case is that how the Medicaid, or excuse me, how the insurance industry is structured, um, whether it's um, left to the states or the federal government, that is an issue that is too big for the Treasury Department. It wasn't even Health and Human Services, but the Treasury Department uh, to decide. So in that case, the chief invoked the doctrine to say, uh, in this case, Congress needs to speak. Uh, or the courts need to interpret. So I think they kind of get you to the same place. Um, my suspicion um, is that in this case, um, the major questions doctrine is a lighter lift. Um, I think that there are more members of the court. Justice Kavanaugh has spoken favorably about it. Just the Chief Justice has spoken favorably about this major questions doctrine. Um, and I think you could get certainly five or six members of the court to say, that when you look at a statute um, and when the administrative agency takes an ancillary provision that has hardly ever been used up until 2015 uh, to reformulate uh, the energy sector of the entire United States, uh, that's not something uh, that uh, Congress has left the agency. It's something that needs to be decided by Congress itself as indeed Congress tried to do and failed. So, so I would be hanging my hat sort of on, on the major questions doctrine but I would not be surprised um, to see a concurrence uh, by Justice Gorsuch agreeing with that limitation, um, but also saying we've got a bigger problem here, as Inez described it. We've got an agency who is purporting to run the energy industry in, in our country. Um, and that certainly should be something uh, that the people's elected representatives uh, are discussing and debating and passing laws about, um, because that way you've got some direct accountability uh, the problem with these agencies making these rules is they're really hard to change. Yeah, and there's there's no direct accountability, of course, for unelected bureaucrats. Um, they they keep their jobs regardless of of the consequences of the political decisions that they're ultimately making. Whereas, you know, part of the reason that it's so difficult for Congress to get Congress to legislate is because um, they are responsive to the American people in some way, and so they're they're therefore a little bit afraid um, to go ahead and legislate on some of these questions. It's much easier for them to toss over a broad delegation to an agency let the agency take the heat because, you know, the, the agency doesn't care about any kind of feedback from voters. Um, and then if, if the, the rule turns out to be popular, the politicians take credit for it. And if the rule turns out to be unpopular, they just blame people who don't have to stand for election. So there, there really is this corrosive um, form of regulating that is, it goes way beyond this particular, you know, energy sector, right? Or whether coal plants, um, coal power, uh, power, which itself is a huge issue, right? Mm -hmm. Itself is like a major issue, a policy issue in the country. But this really does go to the heart of can agencies just circumvent 
you know, can Congress basically toss over whatever power it has to the agencies and let the agencies essentially take the heat, even though they don't have to stand in front of the voters? Um, you know, I think Schoolhouse Rock, right, might be an outdated reference, these days, but it, it used to be the idea used to be that the bill on Capitol Hill and then it goes over to the agency um, and, the, and the executive agencies then, you know, implement it or, or effectualize it. Um, but they they aren't making the law. The Congress is making the law. To what extent is that even true today? Um, and how much power mm-hmm. do agencies actually have? Um, like what what sorts of issues, for example, might be impacted by a ruling that constrains uh, agency power in in this EPA case? That's a great question, Inez. And if you look at the Supreme Court's uh, docket, uh, you will see that a surprising number of those cases are dealing not with statutes enacted by Congress, but by regulations uh, enacted uh, or promulgated uh, by administrative agencies. If you look back a few years, I think it was 2015, uh, Congress enacted about a third as many substantive regulations as did administrative agencies or substantive statutes. So you have uh, two thirds uh, of the substantive laws that govern things we do every day are coming out of agencies, twice as many out of agencies uh, as out of Congress. And that's super concerning for all of the accountability and delegation problems uh, you mentioned. And these rules really run the gamut. Uh, If you are a farmer, uh, you are going to deal again with the EPA uh, and a different statute, the Clean Water Act, and they'll tell you whether or not you can farm, whether there's a wetland uh, that's near or abuts your property, and and whether you can till. Uh, If you are a business, uh, you will be dealing with OSHA and the vaccine mandates. And that case is another uh, example uh, of a recent case in which the court employed this non-delegation doctrine to say, you know, nationwide vaccine mandates uh, as uh, the uh, OSHA uh, agency tried to do, that's something that should should be at Congress. Uh, it shouldn't be left to an agency. Uh, so anything from workplace safety, you're talking about uh, an agency, uh, you're talking about farming, you're talking about uh, everything uh, from how employment runs, um, really anything you can think of. There's a Supreme Court opinion uh, that says that agencies now touch every nook and cranny of daily life. So if you're thinking about a regulation that impacts your life, chances are that regulation has been passed by an administrative agency rather than enacted by Congress. The last time that the courts really um, cited or or had any kind of Mm non-delegation doctrine, which is to say that the courts actually Mm -hmm. enforce the limitations of what Congress can and can't give away to unelected Mm -hmm. agencies in terms of power, uh, we're we're uh, back back in the New Deal, right? Um, the early New Deal cases. So you have J.W. Hampton against the United States, and then you have the famous case Schechter Poultry against the United States. Um, these are both cases that are are essentially pre the change in the Supreme Court, where FDR threatened to pack the court. Now there's some like academic debate about whether or not that made a difference, or whether it was just you know sort of appointments and turnover. But but regardless of why it happened, there was a very sharp shift in the court's view of what powers uh, Congress could and couldn't delegate. And courts kind of packed that that doctrine away um, and and essentially have ignored its existence um, for the last century. Uh, I mean, what what really would um, sort of an originalist court actually enforcing a non-delegation doctrine 
what what would that do? You, you mentioned that these regulations touch every area of life, but how would it change sort of the, the, the dynamics in Washington between Congress and the president um, and the court? I mean, how, how would it sort of redraw the lines um, to actually start to enforce serious limitations on what Congress can delegate? Well, I think that the West Virginia versus EPA is a prime example of that. So under sort of any reasonable, I think, view of either the major questions doctrine or the non-delegation doctrine, questions like this, the uh, you know how uh, the energy sector is comprised and who is composed of it or in that uh, energy sector, those questions are something that should be decided by our elected representatives. Uh, and that's, of course, of what Article One is all about. Article One of the Constitution gives to Congress uh, the ability to make law. Uh, certainly, our federal government has gotten bigger and bigger. Uh, so there's an argument that they need some help. Um, but that help can't come in the form uh, it is currently in. And that's, again, uh, the cap-and-trade legislation fails. Um, and then an agency uh, tries to do that very same thing. So that seems to subvert uh, the constitutional structure. So I would think you would see uh, in cases like uh, West Virginia versus EPA, uh, the court saying, no, uh, this is a question um, that is too big uh, for an agency. Uh, it's a question uh, that Congress did not clearly delegate. Uh, again, the provision they're, they're citing to the EPA is this provision that's barely been used. Um, so for both of those reasons, uh, they would send it back uh, to the agency. Uh, the agency would not be allowed uh, to so radically transform uh, the energy sector. Um, and if Congress uh, chose to regulate greenhouse gases um, in some form, then it would be up to Congress uh, to enact that legislation, uh, not an agency. So I think you would see a lot more of the major actions coming uh, from Congress, um, which I think is where they're supposed to be. Yeah, I guess um, the answer that I've been hearing from a lot of leftists, other than the sky is going to fall because the world is going to end in seven years if if the EPA does not do this. I mean, setting that kind of policy um, objection to the side, I've, I've heard a lot of um, sort of legal commentators express uh, the fear that this this direction of the court could overturn modern governance, um, that in fact, Congress cannot legislate on every all, even these big questions they've proven that they really can't they rely so the left relies a lot on arguments from expertise they're saying these these topics are scientific they require a certain amount of expertise um these decisions need to be made by experts i'm, I'm trying to give the best argument yeah. i can you know what what the impact um on on climate change you know um from coal plants, uh, that, that's a scientific and a technical question. And therefore, these agencies in a modern government have to be able to keep up um, with these different industries in a way that Congress just lacks both the expertise and the ability to, to issue law in a timely way uh, that would actually keep up with these industries and, and that without having this modern governance structure of the agencies being able to make rules on subjects like this, even rules that have even the most tendacious connections to actual mm -hmm. statutes that Congress passed, that functionally Congress isn't going to be able to keep up and we're going to turn into a country that is is largely controlled and dominated by industries um, that that are just way, you know, several steps uh, uh, ahead of Congress who, who really don't, the members don't really understand um, the questions mm -hmm. on which they are legislating and anyway, they'll take too long. So how would you answer that kind of objection that our entire edifice of 
modern mm -hmm. governance really does depend on experts and agencies being able to keep up, regulatorily speaking, with industries. I think, first of all, that might say something about the size of our government, um, which is, is obviously much larger uh, than the framers uh, ever intended. Uh, we've got the Commerce Clause power that extends uh, far beyond uh, what the framers intended. So you got the question just, you know, is this the, the ideal size for government? Um, but assuming that is, assuming that we want a government who does all the things uh, the government currently does, I still think you need uh, the constitutional separation of powers. Uh, and the reason for that being is that it is liberty enhancing. Uh, the way the framers set up the Constitution, you have to have all three branches work in concert before they can curtail your liberty. Um, under the current administrative state, you can have a regulation issued by an agency. You can be called before that agency to account for your actions. Uh, and that agency can issue punishment so that the agency is uh, entertaining all three powers of the different branches of government within one building, uh, sometimes within one single agency. And that's inconsistent uh, and ultimately um, inconsistent with, with the liberty function of the separation of powers. And as far as the practicality goes, uh, it's true uh, that we're calling Congress to do more. Uh, there might be some growing pains. Uh, but this doesn't mean that Congress can't direct the agencies. Uh, as the non-delegation doctrine uh, is stated, uh, it means that Congress must, in fact, delegate uh, to the agency. Uh, so that means they have to give them some clear guidance on what needs to be done. Uh, the administrative agencies can still provide expertise. Uh, they can still provide uh, all sorts of background knowledge. Um, however, uh, it's Congress that should be making the policy shots. Where's the line then? Because this is, this is actually one of the, I think, the more legitimate objections. I, I perhaps am not being entirely fair to the world as falling objections, because like you, I, I think a lot of the way our current government operates is very contrary to the constitutional design. And that's like, it would be a very good thing if a lot of quote unquote modern governance came to an end. Um, but one thing that, that is a real objection, I think here is the line between interpreting and issuing regulations um, based on statutes that Congress passes and essentially pulling new powers out of, out of uh, very, tenacious connections. Policing that line is is not a, a like clear and bright thing. And, and so one of the objections I've heard is that this is going to hand enormous power to the courts um, because unless you have this, this very deferential stance towards agencies and towards their expertise in terms of interpreting the statutes that Congress has enabled them to interpret and then regulate on the basis of that somehow courts are going to be able to read a lot more of their own policy preferences into, uh, you know, let's say, let's call it, let's say that it's an important question doctrine, a revamped important question doctrine, right? That they're going to be able to pour a lot of their own policy preferences into um, this, this ultimately subjective line about how far is too far in terms of, um, you know, what's a question that Congress did speak to um, and what's a question that Congress did not speak to. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things uh, that, that can respond to that. Um, first, um, I, you know, I always have to go back to the Constitution. I think this is how um, it was set up. Um, but in addition to that, um, I think that you would have a Congress uh, that gets more engaged and more active um, if the court requires them to. Um, and currently, as you know, uh, if a statute is overturned by the court, 
it's pretty hard to get Congress to reenact it or to get Congress to uh, respond to a Supreme Court decision. Uh, given the legislative process, that just doesn't happen frequently. Maybe that would happen more frequently, which would be a good thing to have Congress uh, enact, uh, reacting uh, to the Supreme Court. But in terms of the interpretation, um, I, I agree with you that we want to be careful with giving courts too much uh, sort of latitude. I think judicial restraint um, is a good thing. But Article 3 does give the judiciary the power to interpret the law. And that, of course, includes statutes. Uh, and regulations. Uh, so it seems that the Constitution vests that interpretive authority uh, with the federal courts. Um, and the federal courts, I, I think, are bound, um, or, or at least judges who believe in originalism and textualism, are bound by the words that the statute uh, say. Um, so if a statute says X, uh, then a judge should not be able to say Y. Um, so, so keeping judges uh, faithful to the text um, is always important, uh, but would become especially so um, in a realm where you have less deference uh, to administrative agencies. What about the objection then that we are headed into an, another age where the courts become very active in terms of striking down a lot of, let's call it, I don't even want to call it laws that Congress made, because as we see, it's often not laws that Congress has made, but um, where courts become very, very active in stopping or reversing a lot of what the federal government wants to do. is it, This is really, a, this is a great question for you because you did actually clerk for, for the now Chief Justice um, Roberts. It seems that he's very, very concerned about the reputation of the court and maintaining the reputation of the court as apolitical. Um, if the courts are constantly policing um, the federal agencies, that means they're going to be wading into a lot of political conflicts. Do you think there's a risk that there's going to be a sort of corresponding drop in the uh, trust in the courts if they're sort of much, they're, they're getting their hands a lot dirtier in terms of, of the political process? That's a really good question. And I think that, you know, again, um, the doctrines that, that constrain courts, originalism and textualism, and even the doctrines that talk about, you know, don't decide um, a larger case than is before you, all of those things are designed uh, to constrain the discretion of courts. Um, when you're talking about the courts getting more engaged vis-a-vis -vis agencies, I think it's a little different than when you're talking about the court vis-a-vis uh, -vis Congress. Um, when uh, the court is talking about a congressional statute, uh, they do have this idea that they are dealing with a coordinate branch of government um, that is equally entitled uh, to interpret the Constitution, um, to pass statutes, um, and so they're dealing uh, with a, another constitutional actor. Administrative agencies are a little different. Um, in order to, to you know, fit within the constitutional structure, they're best funneled uh, with, uh, within either the executive uh, or uh, Congress. Um, and it seems like they need to fit within either. Um, and if they're uh, congressional agencies that are, age, that are aiding in uh, writing and promulgating congressional policies, then that, that really does get to the non-delegation doctrine that you were talking about. And we need to have Congress superintending those agencies. Hopefully that would release, uh, would uh, sort of obviate conflict in the beginning um, because you would have uh, Congress and the elected representatives really writing herd uh, on these agencies. Um, and, and then, uh, but if it is just a court versus agency, um, I think maybe there might be less deference there than, than court versus uh, Congress. Let's get into the deference question. How does this interact, this entire like 
um, either whether we call it, uh, it non-delegation or we, we talk about it as important questions. How is this going to interact with uh, what seems to be an appetite on the court to really whittle down on um, agency deference, period, mm -hmm. in terms of interpreting the statutes? Because um, I was actually, like, frankly, surprised not to see more of that in this case. And maybe that was my surface level understanding of, of, mm -hmm. of the case. But um, I was surprised that there was less talk about whether the agency's interpretation of the section you cited, and I don't remember the number of it, but the section mm -hmm. you cited where they're pulling this sort of tendacious relationship um, to um, regulating greenhouse gases out of, um, you know, what about the deference? Are they are they entitled to interpret that statute? It seems like the courts have mm -hmm. in the past given such enormous deference to agencies in interpreting the statute that cases like this one are inevitable in the sense that if you give a government agency very, very broad deference, they're of course going to interpret the statutes that they that enable them in the broadest possible way to increase their own power. But how does this interact with say the narrowing of, of either Chevron deference or um, you know deference to agencies in general? Absolutely. So so the major questions doctrine and the non-delegation doctrine come into play before the deference question. Um, so that's one reason I think you don't see as much about Chevron um, and the our deference doctrine um, in the race so it would just be Chevron uh, because it's a statute in this case. Um, and the idea is that even before you get to the deference question, there are just some questions that are too politically, too socially, too economically important for Congress to have left to the agency. Um, we see that again in the example of the Obamacare case. Uh, we see that in the example of the vaccine mandate. Uh, we see that, I, I presumably, I assume that, that four or five, six justices will find that um, in West Virginia versus EPA, that the restructuring of the energy sector uh, is something uh, that is too big uh, for Congress to leave uh, to the agency to interpret. Um, if, on the other hand, uh, that the court finds the major questions doctrine does not apply, then they'll get into Chevron and they'll ask whether it's a reasonable interpretation of the statute. Um, and as you said, there's a pretty good argument to make that, that this uh, ancillary statute doesn't apply uh, to this situation. Um, and so and you get sort of the same ideas, um, the same arguments uh, in favor and against Chevron uh, as you do the major question doctrine and non-delegation that you were explaining about efficiency and expertise and all those sorts of ideas, uh, judicial uh, interpretations and judicial humility, all those things come up uh, in Chevron and our deference as well. So do you, do you think it's possible that the ne in next few terms, the court is going to chip away at both of these kind of simultaneously, that either we're going to get a important questions doctrine that has so much more teeth that courts are less frequently getting to the question of agency deference, and then simultaneously when they do get to the question of agency deference, um, that that we're going to get some decisions in the next uh, next few terms that will narrow the deference that courts are going to be giving agencies. I mean, this is very exciting. I mean, to, to conservatives who care about this kind of balance of power, it seems like there is a real possibility now that the courts will um, constrain, like meaningfully constrain agency behavior. And it seems to me that it's, you know, we've had the thumb on the scale, essentially, for all of the, the transformational reforms that the left wants to make. Uh, for basically a century um, in terms of having agencies that are able to circumvent voter opinions on, on um, you know, important questions of policy. 
I think that's exactly correct. And I do expect that you'll see movement in those areas probably simultaneously and working together um, with the major questions doctrine, with non-delegation doctrine, uh, with the Chevron doctrine. And even um, a couple of terms ago, uh, the Our Deference case uh, came up before the court. Um, and I think some of us were surprised uh, that the Supreme Court did not, in fact, overrule Our Deference. And what Our Deference is, is the step beyond Chevron. So it allows administrative agencies um, to interpret their own regulations, and then the court has to defer even to that interpretation. So that the agency writes the rule, uh, it writes the interpretation, and courts have to defer to all of that. Um, which, as I think it was Justice Leah pointed out, like you're you're deferring to that that doesn't make any sense because um, you're giving a lot of running room uh, to administrative agencies who are not empowered uh, to make the law by Congress. Well, in in the case, uh, the administrative agencies side sort of won. Um, but in a way uh, that Justice Gorsuch described as sort of a zombified version of our. Uh, so our sort of came out of the case, but limps along subject to six or seven exceptions. And so you may see some cases like that. So maybe Chevron survives, um, but only in a very weakened form. It only applies uh, to sort of lower level decisions. Otherwise, the major question doctrine kicks in. And so I think this is an exciting time uh, for people who uh, really um, are attentive to and care about the separation of powers. Uh, there are structural issues that impact, um, as Justice Scalia and Chief Justice Roberts have both said, the way we are governed. Uh, and I think that's, that's such an important point. It's not just this archaic uh, way that the founders set, the, set uh, uh, about setting up the government, but rather it does impact our voices and, and whether uh, the people we vote for are um, able to implement policy, are we able to vote them out, um, or is it instead an unaccountable agency that's making some of the most important decisions for our lives? Yeah, I think for to, to wrap up here, I want to ask you maybe a more philosophical question, um, which is, can you can you take politics out of policy? Hmm. It seems like the underlying principles of the way our government has operated for the last century or more, um, really since the progressive era, has been that there is such a thing as a political administration um, hmm. that, that is equivalent to good governance, right? That um, a lot of these questions, especially in the modern world, like some of the, the critiques we touched upon, a lot of these questions in the modern world are they're too technical, they're too scientific, they're too, um, you know, sort of uh, detail oriented to expect a generalist like a Supreme Court justice or a generalist mm -hmm. like a U.S. senator, right, um, to be able to make decisions that are competent um, in those subjects. Correspondingly, and like, I guess, on, on a different track, I think for the last, especially since the since Donald Trump was elected, and, and he took his four years in office, we've really seen a corresponding plummeting in the trust in that these agencies are apolitical, right? Um, that, for example, the DOJ or our intelligence services are apolitical, or that they're doing their jobs without regard to sort of the politics of the matter. Um, and we have a lot of people in this country uh, who really doubt that at this point. They really doubt whether, you know, the FBI, um, your, your FBI agent has is able to separate, for example, his actual personal politics from the way that he does his job. Um, so I, I guess the philosophical question I want, want to ask you is, do you think that there is sort of a technocratic or apolitical way um, to govern a, a large country, a large and complex country? Uh, mm -hmm. like like the United States of 330 million people? Um, or is, is politics an inherent 
part of governance? And how, how do we balance out the need in the modern world, um, as the progressives argue, to, to be able uh, to, to really um, rely on a certain amount of expertise with the need to actually make sure that we're still a government of the people, by the people, right, um, for the people? How, how do we balance those two things? That's a really great question. And I think those ideas toward efficiency and expertise and a technical understanding were sort of the foundation of the administrative state way back in the 1930s. Um, but as for me, I, th I think my vote would have to be on the side of liberty. Um, and again, if you think about who it is we want to be governed by, um, is it by ourselves? Are we uh, a people uh, who are able to vote uh, for representatives, for congressmen and senators who represent our interests? Um, or are we going to leave it up to people uh, who may have expertise, um, whether or not uh, we agree with them, uh, whether or not they have our best interests um, at heart. And so I think there is a fundamental um, sort of divergence about how we see government. Um, and if you think back to Madison, uh, Madison was concerned. He said, you know, if we had a government full of angels, I am misquoting him here, but if we had a, a government, men were angels and then the government was made full, made up of such as, as, as of these, uh, then there would be no need uh, for this check and balances. There would no, be no need for the separation of powers um, because we'd have fantastic government. But the truth is uh, that men uh, and women are fallible. Uh, they have biases and interests. And so I really trust the American people uh, to be able to work through their elected representatives uh, more than I would trust sort of an elite bureaucracy, uh, however uh, technical, um, well, however uh, technical, whatever sort of technical expertise they might have. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to be having this conversation, right, as we mm -hmm. seem to finally be at the close of a pandemic that was largely governed by bureaucratic and technical expertise without regard to the, the, the sort of political questions involved, right? A political question would be, you know, a scientific question about coronavirus might be, you know, how does this virus spread? You know, what, what mitigation measures might actually, you know, reduce the spread? And of course that's all, um, you know, in, is, is to completely fallible as well as we've seen. Uh, it's difficult with a novel virus to even make scientific pronouncements, but the thing that, you know, Anthony Fauci can't really do or ought not to, but unfortunately we really did govern ourselves this way during the pandemic, you know, somebody like Fauci shouldn't be making the decision of, um, you know, what mitigation measures versus what counter, you know, what are the downsides and upsides of implementing particular measures? schools forever. <laughs> right. Those are inherently political questions, right? How do you trade off not having kids in school for a year and a half in many states versus, you know, uh, how much spread can be controlled through lockdowns. Like, that's not a scientific question. It doesn't matter what your scientific priors are on that. You know, that's not a scientific question. It's a political question. Um, and it really seems like it's an interesting time to be having all of these discussions about what the role of expertise and, and technocracy and unelected bureaucrats really is in our governance um, and, and where, you know, the voice of the people should really be represented through our, our elected are elected officials rather than the unelected. But Aaron Hawley, and, and, oh, go ahead. And the, wanna... part, and the good part of politics too, I think you see moms, uh, they, they got um, uh, sort of criticized for it, but you see moms standing up for kids and you see uh, active engagement uh, in communities and school boards and the like um, as people were fighting um, through the political process uh, for what they thought was best for their children. So, so you see that, that politics at work, as you say. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is this is in fact how um, a republic is supposed to work, uh, and and it seems like we've forgotten that. But maybe uh, a combination of, of of these Supreme Court decisions that are coming up in the next few terms, we might actually get a lesson and 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 uh, start working that atrophied muscle of of self government, which um, really has been has been slack for far too long uh, in this country. I know you you agree with that underlying sentiment. But um, Aaron Holly, thank you so much for joining at the bar today. At the Bar is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. You can also listen to it in podcast form on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and anywhere you get your podcasts. We hope you'll you'll rejoin us in two weeks for our next virtual happy hour conversation about the issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. And then until then, cheers. Thank you.